Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Today on the Ship Shape Podcast, we're joined by a sailor whose tales stretched beyond just the navigation of waters, a journey of self-discovery, of conquering personal storms, in the serenity of finding oneself amidst the vastness of the sea. A man whose life resonates with the rhythm of the ocean, whose stories have been inked not just on paper, but the very salt in the air. Dear listeners, get ready to deep dive with solo sailor, author, and adventurer, Paul Trammell. Let the adventure begin. Your hosts today are Meryl Shrett. I'm a liveboard on a Toshing Toshiba 36 in Boston, Massachusetts, and T. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Dalhab Hati. I'm aboard my 40-foot powerboat in Virginia, and we're getting a storm, and I think Paul's on the other side of the ocean experiencing the same storm. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Paul, where are you recording this from? I am sitting inside my boat, and I'm anchored right next to Isla Bastimentos in Bocas del Toro, Panama. And how long have you been out there? I got here May 11th, so just before right at the beginning of hurricane season and i'll be here six months you get a six-month visa when you come in here and that's just enough time to get out right at the end of hurricane season and head back to the bahamas probably nice how long have you been doing this are you an official snowbird then <laughs> oh i left the snow country years ago and uh have no intention of returning let's see i uh, i bought my first sailboat in 2016 and lived on it part-time until i sold my house and bought this boat in 2019, and I've been sailing and living aboard ever since. Tell us about this boat. What makes this boat special? Windflower is very special to me because she's everything. She's uh, Nothing I own is not on this boat, so this is my, my whole life here. She's a 1972 Cartwright 40. She was designed by Jerry Cartwright, built at the Buzzards Bay Boatyard in Massachusetts in 1972, and she was designed for ocean, for blue water cruising and uh, extended passages and living aboard. You know, Jerry Cartwright was a single-hander and he was into long passages. And I think he designed this boat for the O-Star, but he definitely designed it to be a lot stronger than it needed to be. Uh, designed, in his words, designed to, to survive a roll, you know, rolling completely over in the Southern oh, Ocean. Boy. So everything is oh, heavy boy. duty and, and uh, like there's two backstays, the rigging is three-eighths, you know, giant chain plates, full keel. Everything's heavy duty and safe. And that's what I like. Uh, I'm not in any hurry. Mm -hmm. And um, she sails. She sails great. She cuts through rough seas like butter, you know, just comfortable and smooth and uh, and pleasant. And, and she was designed to be single-handed. So the cockpit is small. You can reach everything from the helm. She was designed with a, a tiller and she still has a tiller post and I still have the tiller, but somebody added a wheel. So she has a wheel now, but I could go back to tiller if I ever want to. But, but it's like 
the tiller is like seven feet long and probably 40 pounds. You know, it's a massive, <laughs> you know, it would kill you if it swung and hit you in the head. Um, so I'm not That's sure right. I'll ever go back to the tiller, but, but, uh, yeah. um, it's always, it's always on my mind because my first mm. boat had a tiller and I really enjoy uh, steering with a tiller. It's, it's more fun. It's a good backup so, for sure. Yeah, it is. It's always there as a backup for me. So, um, you know, obviously you've written a ton of books on sailing. You have a podcast, Offshore Sailing and Cruising. But I want to hear what your origin story is. How did you end up boating in the first place? Uh, to go way back to the beginning, my father was a, a sailor. And so when I was very young, we lived in, in Louisiana. And he had a, a wooden sail, but it was called a NAR, a K-N-A-R, maybe two R's. A 30-foot wooden sailboat with no engine on Lake Pontchartrain. And he would take me out in that, take the family out when we were when I was very young. So I got a taste of it when I was young. He would go on charters sometimes and take us like to the Bahamas or, the, or to the Florida Keys, to the Dry Tortugas. So I got a taste of offshore sailing when I was very young, and it kind of imprinted on me like just the overwhelming beauty and serenity of the ocean. I remember coming up out of the cabin for the first time and looking around and seeing nothing but water and 360 degrees when I was a kid. That's a really cool feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it was amazing, you know, and I was young and impressionable and i remember dolphins i remember pods of like maybe a hundred dolphins just just a massive pod of dolphins what? and some of them were jumping out of the water yeah i mean this is back in like yeah the early 80s probably mm. i'm not sure if this memory is between here and the you know florida and the bahamas or florida and the in the keys and the dry tortugas but uh i remember this massive pod of dolphins and they're leaping out of the water and like, you know, in my memory, they're, they're like doing flips and stuff, you know, they're doing like acrobatics, you know, spinning. Mm. Um, and yeah, mm. they do that sometimes, not necessarily flips, but they jump and spin yeah. Yeah. and they do funny things. But anyway, I it just, I was impressed with it and I loved it. And I, I, don't, I didn't have any kind of negative experiences from it. I don't have any bad memories from sailing as, as with my dad. And then, you know, fast forward to summer camp as a kid, learning how to sail on a lake and a sunfish. And then there wasn't much sailing in, in the rest of my life. So I moved to St. Augustine. I sailed a little bit with a couple of friends who had boats. And then my whole life changed in 2015. I was a big time partier. I was a musician uh, playing in bands, gigging, touring a little bit and partying hard, thinking that was the lifestyle that, that musicians lived, you know. And I quit drinking in 2015. I sort of made up my own technique. I didn't want to go to meetings. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a group therapy kind of person. So anyway, one of my techniques was to save money and put it in a box. Like if I'm, instead of spending 20 bucks on beer today, I'm going to put it in a box, you know, cigar box. And I also figured, okay, I'm going to reward myself after one year. You know, if I make it to one year of sobriety, by golly, I'm going to buy something. I'm going to spend some money, travel, do something cool. And I decided to buy a sailing class. And the reason I decided to buy the sailing class is because Christmas of 2015, I was on a canoe. I was on a solo canoe trip in Georgia through the Okefenokee Swamp four nights, five days of canoeing about 10 miles a day to various platforms uh, that you camped on. It's, it's an amazing place. It's like it's like right out of Central America or something. There's no safety. There's no railing around these platforms. There's no yellow painted line around them. Like if you fall off, like you're in, you're in alligator water immediately and there's gators everywhere and there's not even any way to contact anyone. Like there's no, like you're so far out, you know, for these Where did you choose states, that though? Uh, I put out a, a post on Facebook that said, I'm looking for an adventure. I want a cool adventure to go on. Uh, you know, who's got a recommendation? Because I had signed up for the lottery to um, canoe the Snake River in Utah, and I didn't get it. And I was bummed. So I put that out on Facebook. And somebody said, to check out the Okefenokee Swamp. And I checked it out, and I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like You, you basically rent for like five bucks a night or something at these platforms that are separated by miles. There's only a dozen of them in the whole 
650 square mile park. So you get you get there and you're out in the middle of nowhere in a swamp by yourself, no civilization, no communication, no other people. You can't hear any cars, can't see any cell phone towers, and there's alligators everywhere. And you're like on a platform, <laughs> like a deck, like right above the water. It's mm-hmm. sketchy as hell. And anyway, it was just a big adventure. And while I was canoeing around, I think it was just the second day, I was like, damn, this is so much fun and it reminds me of something. What does it remind me of? And then bam, it hit me, that memory I just described of being a kid coming up out of the companionway, looking around at the ocean, seeing nothing but water. And that's when it hit me. It's like, I need to be a sailor. That's the big adventure. That's the big adventure mm. I'm trying to find. That's what I need mm. to do. Like, screw it. Like, I don't no. need this adrenaline hit. Yeah, take me to the real stuff. Right? Yeah, take me to the big one, you know? Because yeah. I've been trying to think, like, what is the big adventure, like, in this world, you know? What's what's the big, the big, big adventure? And I was like, you know, rock climbing. And like, I'm scared to death of that. Like, I can't, I'm not going to be a mountain climber. And then I'm like, scuba diving. Why well, I already scuba dive? And like, jumping out of an airplane. I don't know. I kept thinking of all these things. And finally, it hit me. Like, sailing, that's the big one. That is the big one. So I bought that sailing class. And then I crewed on a couple of boats. And later that same year, uh, I bought my first boat, which was a Dufour Arpege, a 30-foot sailboat. And I bought her in on the west coast of Florida in St. Petersburg. And I worked on it for two months. I sort of basically taught myself how to single hand. And then I took off for a thousand mile voyage to get her home to St. Augustine. And uh, that was that was a hell of an adventure. Like I was green, you know, I was a novice, total novice, trying to sail my boat on the ocean around the south end of Florida uh, from St. Petersburg to St. Augustine, a thousand miles. Hmm. Tell us more about that trip, though. How, how was that? Like, what was it? Jumping in the deep end, getting your feet wet, like that wet. Uh, it was fantastic. I remember the you know the first day was like there was almost no wind, and my boat only had like maybe a fifteen gallon tank of of diesel. So I was determined not to use the diesel, you know, unless I had to because I needed it, you know, into the in the inlet in St. Augustine, you know. And I was like, I gotta have, I gotta get into the inlet in St. Augustine. I gotta get into the anchorage at the Dry Tortugas, and I'm probably gonna stop in Miami too. So I need, I knew I was gonna need it for those places. So I'm like sailing. It, like one knot for the first like five hours of the trip. I was literally going about one knot. <laughs> I'm going to sail, God damn it. Yeah, I'm right? sailing, but I do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I finally got out into Tamp- Tamp- um, out of Tampa Bay into the Gulf of Mexico and the wind picked up and I had like perfect conditions, broad reach and like, I don't know, 12 or 15 knots or something. It was just so nice and it was great because that was my first night on the ocean by myself. And I was worried, like, well, I wasn't worried, worried, but I was like wondering, like, am I going to be able to sleep 20 minutes at a time? Like, is that even possible? Like, I, I, I don't, I've never been a napper, you know, I'd, I'd sleep eight hours at night and I'm awake for the, the day unless I'm sick. Like, I don't nap still unless I'm sick. So I didn't know if that was even possible. I didn't know if I was going to be terrified. I didn't know if I was going to be seasick. I didn't know if the boat was just going to sink. You know, like when you're new at sailing. You don't have Too confidence funny. that the boat yeah. isn't going to just sink all of a sudden for some mm. reason you don't understand, you know, or something you didn't know about. So I, those things were all in my mind. But I kept telling myself, this boat has literally been floating for about 40 years. Like, mm-hmm. it's not going to just sink. So I kept telling myself that. And I had um, pretty good sailing. The second night was kind of difficult. It was maybe 20 knots on a broad reach, pitch black. Had a, had a fleet of shrimp boats to, to go around, which was, which was much more difficult than I expected. And then I got into, got to the Dry Tortugas and went to Fort Jefferson, Garden Key, anchored and uh, stayed there while the wind blew hard for a few days. And then I took off and had another very pleasant sail, three days to Miami. Some of that was just perfect, just picture perfect, beautiful sailing. So, Paul, obviously, if if we bring it back a little bit, sobriety and sailing are, are very much connected. 
right? So can you discuss your emotional journey of replacing alcohol with sailing and maybe some advice that you might give someone that might be in a similar situation? Yeah, absolutely. Sailing to me was a substitute for drinking. So when I, that's another one of the, my methods, my techniques was to find substitutes. That's why I wanted to go on the big adventure because all of a sudden I didn't have anything to do on weekends. And all of a sudden I didn't know what to do with myself after work every day. And, you know, like you're used to having like this good fun time, you know, you, you get high and drink some beers and party and that's gone. Like this whole huge part of your life is gone. And it's what you associated with, with fun and good times. To me, it had also, the partying had already taken place of the adventures I used to go on when I was younger before I got into all that. So it was a substitute. And I, you know, and I made up with other substitutes too. Like I would, st I started jogging. I started swimming in the ocean, you know, like long ocean swims. Like I'd be pissed off just for no reason. My emotions were way out of whack, not only from quitting drinking, but from quitting smoking weed too. I was a big time pothead, like wake up in the morning and get high, you know, and smoke throughout the day. So that was gone too. And, um, so I started doing things like ocean swimming. I'd be pissed off. I'd jog to the beach, just get in the water and swim for like a half a mile or a mile, you know, just out in the, out past the breakers out in the ocean, you know, where, where the sharks were. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, like give me something scary, you know, like just bring it on, you know, like I'm just pissed off right now. So I had a lot of time like that. And, and I'm like, yeah, I need substitutes. I need, I need other things to do. So of course, sailing became that. And once you're out on the ocean, there's no beer store. There's no liquor store. There's no friend down the street who sells you weed. You know, you don't have a bong on the boat. You don't have any alcohol on the boat. Like you're cut off from it. There's no temptation. It's very nice. It's very easy to make your boat your sanctuary where you don't have any of that. Uh, and now I live at Anchor. So there's no liquor store. You know, the temptation's gone. I ask people not to bring alcohol to my boat too. Like my boat's a sanctuary. There's never any alcohol on it. There's never any drugs on it. You know, I'm sober on the boat. And sailing offshore by yourself like you can't drink anyway it'd be it would be suicide to to drink while sailing offshore by yourself you know even a little bit would be would be uh, you know dangerous like it's hard enough not to stub your toe like you guys know it's hard enough not to get hurt <laughs> when you're sober you know like you stub your toe and bang your head and slip and fall and mm. you can't be slipping and falling you know like mm. you can't you can't be kicking things and you got to have all your wits about you you got to be able to wake up at a moment you got to be able to wake up because because the boat's angle of healing has changed you know you gotta you gotta recognize that while you're asleep and wake up and be like what's wrong oh sh we're about to jive you know run upstairs grab the wheel because <laughs> you're about to jive you got to recognize that stuff and you're not going to if you've been drinking so it, it really works you know and a lot of people think yeah but isn't everybody else out there drunk no they're, they're not maybe they are like around cities you know in towns yeah. around marinas they sit on the dock and drink all day yeah, marinas, right. sure. If you live at Anchor in the Bahamas and in Panama and places where people have to sail a long way to get to, they're not they're not heavy drinkers, you know. Uh, there's going to be your uh, your typical responsible drinkers, of course, most people are. But there's not a lot of heavy drinking going on out in these places because you can't mm -hmm. get here if you live like that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my theory anyway, but but it's not any sort of issue. People think it's going to be an issue like, well, aren't you going to be surrounded by a bunch of hard partiers? No, I'm not. Not at all. So it works well. So you've overcome, you know, the alcoholism. You've discovered boating, and what what happens next? This was your first boat, right? You you made it to Florida solo, and you've just sort of got a taste for. Oh my God, this could this could be life changing, right? Mm -hmm. What was so far? What was already like the most significant moment in your life up to that point? Yeah, I mean, when I arrived in Saint Augustine, uh, it was it was really bizarre. Like when I was sailing. I started getting close to the beach towards the end of the journey. You know, like I usually stay pretty far offshore so I can sleep and not run into anything. 
but as I started getting closer to home, you know, I got I got close enough to see the beach and to see the places where I served and where I lived, and it was really strange. It's like, am I really here? Like, is this like is this really happening? Is this really St. Augustine? I'm on this boat that it was a thousand miles away a week ago, and then you know I pull into the inlet and into the mooring field and pick up my mooring, and you know the lighthouse is right in front of me and all the, the neighborhood a neighborhood i recognized you know i never like i it was so strange to be there it was so amazing very life-changing like and i still get that feeling when i sail to somewhere new it's like wow like i just crossed a thousand miles on the on like a sailboat which is hard to even understand how it works it just kind of moves by magic very slowly mm-hmm. you know and then here you are you're in this new place but but when i arrived in san augustine it was very much a life-changing event and i, I really enjoyed it and then the next big journey was a solo trip to the Bahamas for two months. And that was the first time I spent any amount of time on the boat. And I got back from that thinking, yeah, I could live that way. Like, I'm not mm. worn out. I'm not all beat up and tired and worn out. I'm not starving or dirty or, you know, I could did, live did that way. Did this happen back to back? You know, the, the Florida Bahamas? No, it was, trip, it was, did... uh, it was maybe, maybe two years later. It was 2018 okay. when I went to the Bahamas. And again, that was like, novice you know novice sailor like i kind of know how to sail now but i've never tried to navigate through the bahamas which is which requires a lot of paying attention there's so there's a lot of reef a lot of shallow water a lot of current a lot of inlets to deal with really got to be on your toes you know with modern navigation it's not that hard but to a novice you're, you're worried the whole you're like the whole time you're like am i gonna hit a reef you know is that a reef ahead of me because the water is crystal clear and you're and it's always shallow and you can see all the reefs and sometimes you got to sail right over these dark patches and you're not sure, is that a dark patch of grass 20 feet down or is that a coral reef that's going to be four feet down and I'm going to nail it? You know, you're like, that's always on your mind. But anyway, yeah, it was very exciting. I uh, sailed to the Bahamas, hit a whole bunch of islands. You know, I was trying to go to like remote places and I got to a bunch of like, I got to the Ragged Islands. And I wrote a book about this one. It's called Journey to the Ragged Islands. Mm, tell us uh, more about this. I just did an island run. I loved it. What what islands did you see? What was uh, the life there? It's totally different from city life or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Bahamas are fantastic. I went to a whole bunch of different places. Uh, I started in Eleuthera, and then I went through the, the the Exumas, and then I made it to the Ragged Islands, um, the Long Island and Conception Island and Rum Key. And, yeah, it was amazing. You know, the people there are so friendly. Like they'll stop and they see them, they see you walking on the road and they'll just stop and pick you up and give you a ride. Even if you're not hitchhiking, you know, they're just very friendly, helpful people and they want to talk and learn who you are and tell you about themselves. And, and then, uh, yeah, the diving is fantastic. The, the uninhabited islands, you're just out in the pure, pure wilderness out there, you know, with this little island that's like 20 feet tall, you know, <laughs> a flat island and beautiful reef and clear water. Uh, and, you know, I met a whole bunch of other sailors and friendly people. Uh, yeah, it was it was a and a full of adventure. I mean, I I oh gosh, I almost died a couple of times out there. Like I, I encountered a huge oceanic white tip shark, so oh freaking scary. I've never been that scared. It was bumping in like I was on a surfboard. I didn't have a dinghy. I had a twelve foot surfboard with a with a kayak paddle. That was my dinghy. Uh-huh. And while I was sitting on that, I was in off the north end of Cat Island looking for a blue hole to dive in about a half a mile from my boat with no civilization or other people or other boats in sight and like. All of a sudden, there's a huge dorsal fin. I mean, it might have been two feet out of the water. It was huge. And it's coming right at me very slowly. Oh, boy. That's straight out of Jaws. And, and, yeah, straight out of Jaws. Yeah, and the, the thing's head like breaks the surface of the water. And it's bigger than you can even imagine a shark's head should Ooh. be. And it bumps into my board. It bumps into my surfboard. Oh, God, it was so scary. And it, it, yeah, it's it like, circled. What are you yeah. doing here, pesky human? Yeah, yeah. I was checking me out. Like, 
Are yeah. you edible? What is this thing? Is it edible? <laughs> well, it didn't. It couldn't figure that out on the first try, so it did it a second time, and a third time, and even a fourth time. And I was pushing it away with my paddle every time, just trying to keep my wits about me and remain still. And uh, anyway, it it didn't it didn't attack me. Uh, yeah, and then I almost drowned. Uh, I was pre diving in a blue hole. Yeah, and the funny thing is, like, I'm on this journey. I'm writing a book, and I'm looking for adventure. I'm like, I need adventure. I need to dive in blue holes. I need to do exciting things, you know. And then that shark thing happened, and then I'm like, oh god, I don't know. Maybe do it, need- do it. Rewind, yeah, rewind. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then I finally did. It found a find a blue hole off one yeah. island hmm. and dove in it and freaking passed out while I was underwater and floated oh. to the surface and woke up woke up on the surface completely disoriented and blind and uh, holy cow that was that was just what, what does that mean you, you ran out of air while you were under the water yeah I, I oh boy yeah, I, I screwed up you know my technique was was poor and of course anybody who's a free diver who's listening right now is shaking their heads and calling me an idiot and as they should because I shouldn't have even have been doing this alone. But as a solo mm. sailor, like I'm gonna free dive alone. That's all there is to it. I still do. Mm. But anyway, I shouldn't have been doing what I, I should have been doing it differently. I should have been using more proper breathe up technique and surface intervals, and I uh, shouldn't have been going as deep as I was. But but yeah, I basically like passed out underwater. Basically, it's like falling asleep. Actually, you know what? Drowning isn't so bad. You just fall asleep. That's it. Uh, that's what happened. You know, I was coming up to the surface and I felt fine, and all of a sudden, I'm like, holy shit, I'm falling asleep. And bang, I was out. I was dreaming. I mean, I still remember the dream I had. Um, and then I woke. Yeah, tell us, tell us, what was the dream? Uh, somebody was talking to me. Uh, it was a profile of myself, like like you can see yourself. Like I could see myself from the profile, and I was listening to somebody who was talking to me. And um, a brick wall was in the background, and uh, I was just kind of like looking up a little bit, like at somebody taller than me who was off screen. And I was just listening and nodding my head, and that's it. That's the whole dream. But it's very vivid in my memory still. You know. Wow. Um, and, yeah, and you'd I call mean, it a dream. You wouldn't call it a near-death experience. You know, in the memory, it's just like a dream, but it's absolutely a near-death experience. When I when I think about it logically, like I, I did step right across the, the edge of death and went to the other side for just a moment. And somebody like, and I'm just speculating right now, of course, but like my guardian angel, who I'm sure I have, because otherwise I'd be dead, you know, a dozen times already or more. Uh, my guardian angel was like shaking his finger and pointing at me and saying, now listen here, Paul. You got to quit doing this, you know, like quit diving so deep by yourself and you know, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not finished on earth yet. It's not your time, you know, quit making me work so hard. <laughs> wow. <laughs> sort of thing. Just to give us some context, how deep did you go and how long did you hold your breath? Uh, the blue hole, blue hole is basically like a sinkhole in the ocean. Uh, it's a vertical shaft. So the surface around it was about 15 feet deep and then the blue hole went down it was 85 feet on one end and 55 on the other. And the, the deep end had a cave entrance. So the first couple of dives, I went to the deep end just for a moment, like just enough to get down there and look in the cave and then head back up. And then the second and the third and fourth dives, I went to the shallower end. And, you know, I had a GoPro running the whole time. So I know that the dive that I passed out on was a minute 45 total, something like that. But yeah, the camera was running. In fact, it's on YouTube. It's called um, Journey to the Ragged Islands, episode four, maybe five the whale hole so the blue hole is called the whale hole it's uh it's uh off long island bahamas scary experience so you come from a a pretty diverse background right you've done teaching you've done roofing you've been a musician you know but you also got a degree in biology so Mm -hmm. how has that influenced your view of the world and the ocean and the sea yeah i studied biology i thought i was going to be a doctor like my father when I went to college and I quickly realized that that wasn't, that wasn't me. 
so I went on and, and got my biology degree, and then I didn't know what to do, and ended up going to graduate school and got a master's in biology. Still didn't know what I wanted to do, so I taught school for a year in Connecticut. Hated it, and went back to West Virginia, where I was from, and just needed a job. Didn't know what to do. Got a job as a roofer, nailing up shingles with a hammer on a, you know the roofs of houses. Then December rolled around, and it was just way too cold to be nailing up shingles on the roofs of houses in December in West Virginia. That's kind of ridiculous, but we were doing it anyway. So I moved to Florida, where I went to undergraduate. I uh, figured if I'm going to be a construction worker, like I'm going to be somewhere warm. And I moved down there, not thinking I'm going to be a, a carpenter for my life, but thinking I'm going to be a musician. And I picked St. Augustine because it had 30 art galleries and street musicians all over the place. And it was beautiful. It was affordable. There's jobs. I got. I lined up a construction job in an apartment and moved there and immediately started playing music in bands and chased that dream for 20 years. But anyway, yeah, to answer your question, I love having studied biology because it just gives you an understanding of the life in the ocean because I studied marine biology mostly. So I, I can identify all the fish and I can look at the invertebrates and know what most of them are. And I can kind of look at everything and understand like, okay, this thing eats that thing. And these little things are babies of this species. And these creatures come out at night and this thing eats them. And, you know, you, you just get a deeper understanding of it and appreciation. But it's also sad because you look at the coral reef and you, you also see that the coral's dead, you know, most of it's dead. You might not realize that if you're not a biologist, you might just look at it and think, oh, yeah, it's just a big rocky structure covered in coral and algae and stuff. But, you know, I dove in the Bahamas in the, in the early 90s, the late 80s, early 90s, and I've dove there extensively these last five years. And uh, what used to be just like cartoon colored massive coral reefs are now dark gray covered in algae, dead coral reefs. It's really sad. It's worldwide, too. It's not just the Bahamas. It's, it's, it's worldwide. You know, it's, uh, it's happening. No doubt about it. And is that because of human intervention and overfishing and all that? Pollution? It's because of a lot of things, but mostly it's climate change. Uh, coral is mm -hmm. very sensitive to changes in water chemistry, water temperature, water pH, um, and any kind of nutrients in the water. So, yeah, mostly it's just the fact that the temperature of the oceans are rising. And it's also because the acidity of the ocean is increasing because of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere being absorbed into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then if there's any any pollution in an area, specifically um, nutrients like from sewage and runoff from agriculture, uh, that fertilizes the algae that, that cover the coral and kill it. So there's a lot of reasons, but, but yes, the answer to your question is, is yes, it's because of us. Ahoy investors! Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape. The innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. So I want to take us back to some of the life-changing, scary stuff you were up to. Had you started your, your books and your podcasts and stuff already when you were doing the free dives and the island visiting? And how, how did that fit into the game plan? Yes. My first book was Alcoholics Not Anonymous, A Modern Way to Quit Drinking. I wrote that before I even really started sailing or right at the beginning. And then my second book was Becoming a Sailor. It's about the 
Journey from St. Petersburg to St. Augustine. And then I wrote Journey to the Ragged Islands. I wrote it while I was at, there, you know, with the shark and the drowning. You know, I, I write while I'm sailing and then and then edit for the next year, you know, to, to make the book. Uh, so I started all that right away. And I started the I started my podcast in 2020. Yeah, during the during the pandemic, I was actually visiting my parents. Not visiting, I was taking care of them because they were sick. They had COVID. I was in Louisiana, I think for the first Ah, like right at the beginning of my podcast, yeah, right at the very beginning, it was it was summer of 2020. My boat was hauled out in St. Augustine, and I was I was uh, doing a major refit that took about eight months, and uh, that's when I decided I wanted to start a podcast. Why exactly well, did you decide to start a podcast in the first place? Um, I decided to start the podcast because well, I had been on the Ocean Sailing podcast and with David House, and then one day he said at the very end, he's like, if anybody wants to be a guest host interview someone and send it in and I'll, and I'll put you on my podcast as a guest host. So I tried that. I did a couple interviews with people and he put it on and I was like, yeah, that's kind of fun. Um, and then, you know, as a writer, as a self-published writer, it is a hundred percent up to you to market your books. If you write a great book, it can be worthy of Charles Dickens. And if you don't market it, it's not going anywhere. You can't rely on someone to discover you. Like that's a myth. Like that's, that's not going to happen. You absolutely can't rely on anyone but yourself when it comes to marketing your books. You got to do it. You got you got to be creative. There's not an easy way. You can't and you can't just throw money at it. You can't just like hire. There's no like advertising firm you can just hand a thousand bucks to and and uh, all of a sudden you're you're popular, you know, or ten thousand or whatever. Like, like it's up to you to get creative and to market. That was the original impetus. The the original reason that I started the podcast was simply to get my name out there and and have a way to advertise my books. You know, obviously that sounds very self-serving, and it is, uh, but <laughs> but it's totally necessary. But it's turned into something I enjoy. In fact, I enjoy it so much. I started another podcast called Dream Chasers and Eccentrics, where I interview people who anyone who's chased a dream. You know, I got it, I got to where I wanted to interview people other than sailors, uh, so I started that podcast recently. I like it. Mm. I like talking to people. I'm a solo sailor. I don't get to talk to people very often. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. so, so I want to uh, dig a little deeper into the self-publishing because you said something interesting. You said that you write while you sail and then you edit for like the next year. So just like if somebody's thinking about self-publishing their own book, like what, what tips and stuff could you offer them? So if you're writing nonfiction, like about an adventure you're going on, you got to recognize that before you start the adventure. And then you got to take notes. You got to write every day, just like journaling. Or if you're a sailor, you're writing a log anyway. Just write very extensively in your log what you're doing, what you're feeling, what you see, why you're doing th what you're doing. You can also use your phone to record voice memos. If you're sailing and you, you're at the helm and you're like, damn, this is beautiful. Oh my God, there's a dolphin. Like pick up your phone and, and, and hit voice memo and record yourself just to describe the scene. Describe what you're feeling, you know, get, get, get the emotions involved, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can feel, what you smell, everything, all the senses, all of the senses. Um, and then when the journey's over, you've got this, you know, hopefully you've got like a notebook full and then you got to sit down on your computer every day for like the next year and organize it and edit it. And, um, you know, once you've got it written and it looks like a book, like, okay, now you're maybe you're halfway there. You need to really spend a lot of time reading it and editing it. You know, like once I've got a book to the first draft stage, which basically looks like a book, that's halfway. I'm going to read it at least a dozen times very slowly and edit. And I'm going to send it off to other people and let them edit it and, and let them comment on it. And then eventually, eventually it's ready and it's very hard to de determine when it's ready. So when you feel like there's no way you can read it anymore, you're so sick of it, it's got to be ready. 
just give it a couple of weeks and then come back to it and read it again. You know, you're going to do that a few times. <laughs> you know, and if you're writing fiction, that's just a whole different ball game. You got to you got to uh, sit down every day and because you don't know what happens. You know, you got to make it up. Mm. If you're going to write fiction, I would say that the first thing you want to do is like start reading about it and listening to podcasts about writers and and um, learning how to do it. Because if you if you just sit down and wing it and try to write your first book, which which you're gonna you're gonna do anyway. But you also need to educate yourself about how to write fiction because it is way harder than writing nonfiction. Mm. So in both cases, say you end up with a manuscript that you're happy with, what happens then? How do how do you self publish? What does that entail? Oh, you go to uh, Kindle Direct Publishing (KDP). Uh, you know, from Amazon, set up an Amazon account, go to KDP, and it's just like following a cookbook. You got to basically upload your book to Kindle Direct Publishing, and then you format it and modify it and follow all their instructions and you got to make a cover and it takes a while you know even now that I, after 10 books i'll spend a day on the um ebook and another day on the paperback it's you know it's a, a couple of days of work but then you're done that's it and you're going to get paid royalties for i don't know the rest of your life i guess it's, it's pretty cool and then then it comes down to you marketing it to hell like you were saying yeah now it's up to you got to get on social media you got to try to book you got to try to book interviews on other podcasts anything you can do because it's hundreds of books probably published every day like you're you're throwing yourself into a huge competitive environment if you're in a niche like sailing nonfiction that's a little niche market you, if your book is pretty good and you got a good cover and you got a good title and you're a member of a bunch of sailing groups on Facebook okay you're gonna get some sales right there if you're writing fiction mm -hmm. like forget about it it's going to be tossed into category with a million other books and it's going to be right down there at the bottom. And if it's totally up to you to get any sales at all, it's really, really difficult. Um, yeah, you got you to get creative with your marketing. Mm. You got to figure, figure yeah. out how, what, what you're going to do. I'm still figuring it out. It's tough. And for the well, cover and the title and stuff, would you like outsource it or would you do it yourself? I've done it myself. It's not so hard for a sailing nonfiction. You get a, you pick a good photograph and you put your title on top of it and you, there you go. For fiction, I have made two of my own covers and outsourced a, a third. And I, you know, really the right thing to do is to out, like pay someone, pay a professional who has made successful covers in that genre. Pay them 500 bucks or a thousand bucks and get the cover, get a pro professional cover made because that's the only way people judge books. They're flipping through Amazon looking for their next book if the cover doesn't catch their eye and identify the book as to being in a particular genre, they're not even going to take the next step, which is to click on it and then read the little blurb. So your cover has to be just right. Your title has to be just right. Your blurb has to be just right. And then the next thing they're going to do is click on the book and, and read the first chapter because Amazon lets you do that. So your first sentence better be a hook, better be just right. And your second sentence and your first paragraph and the first chapter, like you got to get all that stuff right. Or else you're not going anywhere. You know, it's a tough market, but you got to be persistent. Yeah, it's it's art, and in any art, you have to be driven and persistent, and you got to you got to somehow find confidence that that, that it's going to work, or else you'll give up. Mm, great tips, thank you. Well, let sure. me ask you a deep question that you know someone who's a writer could answer. So the sea is often seen as a mirror of the subconscious, and in your solo journeys, what revelations about your inner self? have you had i have definitely learned that i like being alone and i like being alone deep in nature and the deeper i can get into nature the happier i am so you feel that when you're way out on the ocean 
when there's no land in sight, particularly like on a beautiful day or a beautiful night when the conditions are just right, there's nothing like it. You know, you're going downwind on a broad reach and uh, here's like, here's the scene. I'm in the Gulf Stream. I'm going, I don't know, I'm somewhere up in the Cape Hatteras area, going north on the way to Canada last uh, two years ago, or a year, year and a half ago. And uh, I'm, I'm picking up on the VHF radio, I'm picking up like severe thunderstorm warnings. Well, anyway, the thunderstorm passes ahead of me and the wind picks up to about 30 and I'm on a broad reach and I'm in the Gulf Stream and we're just flying downwind. The boat's happy. Everything's cool. The hydrovane's steering. It's nighttime. And then there's lightning off in the distance, just nonstop. Just boom, boom, boom. It's like a total like war zone out there, you know, but it's not threatening me. It's too far away, you know, so it's just like this awesome sight, you know, and it, it's just all night long. And I didn't even, I didn't want to sleep. I just wanted to sit in the cockpit and watch, you know, it was so cool. Yeah. And then I, and then I get to Canada. My God, goodness. I sailed to Newfoundland last summer to explore the fjords on the South coast that are totally uninhabited. Like that island is sparsely inhabited. That's an island like the size of Georgia or Texas or something. It's a big, it's a big island, you know, and um, it's only inhabited on the edge and it's not inhabited at all in the central Southern coast. So you go up into these fjords and there's thousand foot walls of rock on both sides of you and mountains, like only trees down at the bottom. So the mountains are bare of trees. And you get up into the fjords and there's an anchorage and there's waterfalls and there's seals and bald eagles and there's no people and no houses and no roads and no sounds of cars, and no airplanes flying overhead, no no cell phone towers, just mountains and wilderness. And oh my God, I just, I love that. That's, that's like where I'm, that's my happy place. That's where I love to be, places like that. Yeah. And I wrote a book about that too called Sailing to Newfoundland. Mm. Okay, so I have something that sort of piggybacks of that. Two two questions, actually, and you can choose which one you want to do first. But like, one is when you're in places like this where there's just extreme, like you're the only one around for miles and miles and miles and miles. Do you ever get lonely? And, and if so, like, how, how do you deal with situations like that in extreme isolation? And then the second one, sort of, and you can weave them together, just maybe like what was the most gratifying moment solo sailing and what was the scariest moment solo sailing okay i i don't get lonely mm. i think some people experience loneliness and other people experience solitude so when i'm out in nature i experience solitude 24 7 uh, no loneliness whatsoever the funny thing is when i'm back somewhere like florida and i'm anchored in the intercoastal and there's a town and i'm by myself and there's people driving to work and driving across the bridge then I start feeling lonely because there's, pe because there's people all around me and none of them are like hanging out with me, you know, <laughs> mm. Mm. but when there's nobody, no, there's no loneliness. I, I, I love it. It's all good. Um, and I can, I can contact, I've got a Garmin inReach. I can, I can text my, my father, my sister, my brother, any, any of my friends. I mean, I've got Starlink now. I just got that. So that's going to change things. Mm. But um, no, I don't get lonely. You asked what some of the best situations so are. The most gratifying and some most of the gratifying. scariest. Yeah. Yeah. Most gratifying is showing up somewhere that you've been trying to get to for a long time. Arriving in Newfoundland, for instance. You know, I, I left Florida in May, went to Maine, and then a week or two in Maine, and then I sailed up to New Nova Scotia and day sailed through Nova Scotia. And then finally I left Nova Scotia for Newfoundland and oh, I had such a difficult last day. It was you know, the last night and the last day were like dense fog, like the really kind of dense fog where where you can't see anything in front of your boat. You don't you don't know what the visibility is because it looks like zero. You know, it might be hundred feet, it might be ten feet. You really can't even tell. When you're solo and it's not foggy and you can see seven or eight or ten miles in every direction, 
you, know, you can see boats 12 miles away because they're lights and they're up above the horizon. Then you know you've, you can't see anything. You know you've got a safe 20 minutes to sleep. When it's pea soup fog and you're coming up on Newfoundland and there might be little fishing boats out that don't have AIS and aren't going to get picked up on my radar because, because fiberglass boats don't pick up on the radar. I've seen it happen. Yeah. You can't, all of a sudden you realize, I can't go to sleep. I can't read my Kindle. I've got to stare straight ahead into the fog or else I'm putting not only myself, but someone else in danger because there's an inhabited island 20 miles away. And you know, everybody that lives on it's a fisherman and they've all got boats and they're going to be out here fishing. Yeah. And like, damn, I'm like, I didn't think about this. So, so God, I had a really difficult final, you know, approach to Newfoundland. It's raining a little bit. It's cold. Uh, I'm tired as hell. I'm motoring and uh, motor sailing into a 12 knot wind. It's just like not pleasant conditions at all. But finally, I get like, I start getting close to the island and, and the mountains are like a thousand or 1200 feet tall. So you should be able to see it from many miles away. Of course, you can't in the fog. So I get closer and closer and closer. And now I'm like a mile away and I still can't see it. And I'm heading towards what my chart plotter, my radar says is the entrance to this fjord. And now I'm a half a mile away and I still can't see it. And I'm like, good grief is this, this is so strange, you know? And then finally, like, something dark, you know, emerges out of the fog. And then bam, it's like this huge thousand foot wall of rock. And, and, you're, and then you can see the calm water in the fjord inside it. And then you can see the other side of the fjord. It's just rock, you know, with cracks and crags and no life on it, just bare rock. And the water inside the fjord is glassy smooth. And, uh, and you're like, oh my God, this is it. You know, this is Newfoundland. And, it's, and you get in there and you don't know what to expect. And you see these mountains and the, and the, the fog starts to lift. And you see waterfalls. And, and then you pull in. I pull into the anchorage called Dead Man's Cove in uh, Cape Lahoon, Lahoon Bay. And it's just like nothing you've ever seen. It's like a, it's like right out of a, a movie. It's like it could be in The Hobbit or something. It's this huge walls of curving cliff that are carved out by a glacier and a green valley and fog and rain. And the tops of the mountains are obscured by clouds. And there's a waterfall that's like coming down from the clouds, just falling down. It's just overwhelming. And this is a place that's existed in my mind for so long. And it's been a goal for so long. And now it's real. You know, it's like it used to only exist in my mind and on maps. And like now it's real. It's just really strange. It's otherworldly. You know, it's you feel like you might as well have gone to a different planet. I don't know. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Mm. You, you know, this, this, this place that only exists hypothetically, like all of a sudden you're there and it's real. So it's amazing. You know, I've experienced that quite a few times. That's the most gratifying moments of sailing, I think. When you were describing that, it literally it sounded like you were reading from your book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I hope the book sounds like that. Yeah, I hope it gives you an emotional response when you read it. That's the, that's the point, mm. is to share those experiences. Yeah, that's the whole point of the books, all right, to share the experience, because it's something else. Yeah. And there's like no one there. I, I was there for two months, and I saw six other boats. Six. You know, there's no one there. And it's just fantastic cruising around. So describe that more, and we still need the, the scariest as well, but describe that more, just being in a place where there's just no human beings, period. And again, for like, who knows, weeks even. Oh, it's wonderful. I love it. You know, I, I did a lot of hiking. There's no, there's no trails there either, but since there's no trees, you can just hike wherever you want. It's just like a tundra sort of ground cover. Now that you go ashore and the bugs immediately try to kill you, but as you go up the mountain, they get less and less. And when you get to the top, um, there's kind of like a, a plateau on the top of the, of the mountains and it's a rocky mountainous moon it's like like the like moon or something it's all rocks a little bit of tundra lots of lakes and ponds and creeks and um mountains in the background it's really amazing up top 
so that's what I always tried to do. I would I would uh, anchor somewhere, and then on a, whenever there was a nice day, which was about maybe one out of every three or four days was a nice day, I would go try to hike and get up into the mountains, get up on top. And once you're up top, there's no more bugs, and you can hike around and be free of them. And you got you know you got the classic views of your boat way down in a fjord, surrounded by cliffs. Uh, yeah, fantastic up there. And the fishing was good. I learned how to catch mackerel. They come in in the morning and swim right past my boat, and I throw a lure out and get get three or four mackerel. Caught some some speckled uh, brown trout in the streams. So I ate, I ate fish all the time when I was up there. Not a whole lot of wildlife. I saw a moose and a couple of caribou and some seals and bald eagles and crows. And I saw some bear scat, but I never saw a bear. I saw some bear footprints too, black bear. But there's not a whole lot of life there because that whole island was covered by a glacier, you know, in the not too distant past. And so nothing lived there. And the only animals that live there now either were able to cross the ice to get to it or the moose and the caribou were actually introduced by humans uh, for the purpose of feeding the people that lived there. And now the moose are a problem. Now there's so many moose that like people hit them with their cars all the time and they're huge. You know, they're, they're like bigger than a horse. They're, they're really big animals. But uh, yeah, and actually my last day there, uh, a guy came out, I was at a, not a marina, but a, um, a dock, a public dock, which is great. Like Canada has public docks for sailboats. Like you can just tie up your boat to a dock without asking anyone and it's free. It's pretty, pretty freaking cool because there's no, because there's no competition. There's like no sailboats there. You know, it's like, you're like a, an oddity, you know, pull in and people want to come talk to you. So this guy comes out and starts talking to me and, and, and then he goes home and comes back with 10 pounds of frozen moose. So I got to, yeah, I got to eat moose for the next like two weeks. Yeah. Moose burger, moose sausage, moose T-bone steak, <laughs> like moose soup, all kinds of moose. Priceless. Yeah. yeah, totally priceless. Yeah. Fantastic place. Undercruised. I mean, Maine is chock full of people. Nova Scotia is not, and it's right next to it. And then Newfoundland's right next to Nova Scotia, and there's practically nobody there. So if you're sailing up north, like, yeah, man, go to go to Nova Scotia at least. And then once you're in Nova Scotia, it's like overnight to get to Newfoundland. It's just overnight, an overnight sail. If you pick your weather window right, it's no big deal. Mm. You just got to get out of there. You, you've only got two months. You've got July and August, and uh, that's it. You know, June's a little too early. It's still cold and nasty weather, and there still might be ice floating around. And then um, September's too late. Like, winter storms are happening, hurricanes. Like a hurricane hit Newfoundland right after I left. I left like right at the end of August and within a couple of weeks they got nailed by a hurricane. So did Nova Scotia. So you got it. You got two months, July and August and it's beautiful. It's beautiful in July and August up there. Just gorgeous and cold. And what's the cold. scariest story? Um, scariest. I, I haven't, you know, I've been lucky. I haven't really had too many bad weather situations, but you know, my first journey from St. Pete to St. Augustine, you know, going around Cape uh, Canaveral heading North, it was a little ugly. It wasn't scary by my standards today, but back then I was just so so much of a novice that um, the boat was making so much noise. You know, we're banging into the steep seas. There was a northwest wind, so you know the Gulf Stream and a north wind is is nasty. So we're banging into these choppy waves and over and over again. The boat's making so much noise that I just I just couldn't shake the feeling that the boat might break in half at any minute. Mm. That was kind of scary. It wasn't looking back on it, like I wouldn't be worried about that at all today. And then on my first trip to the Bahamas, I had a oh, crossing the um, crossing the Gulf Stream. Everything was cool. It was very peaceful. And then you know, I'm sitting in the cockpit, tiller in hand. And then um, it's pitch black night. And then a you know, squall hits. I didn't have radar. I didn't have any way of knowing a squall was coming. You know, now I'm more aware. Like I noticed, like oh, the whole like 
western sky has no stars in it all of a sudden you know whereas the eastern sky has stars like where the stars go well they they're gone because there's a squall coming <laughs> you know <laughs> that's one way to tell more situational no, awareness yeah so at the time i didn't have any and it was just like all of a sudden there's a massive wind and there's so much rain i was way over canvassed and the rain was so heavy i couldn't see i couldn't see anything i could not see the cockpit right next to me i couldn't see any of my instruments it was just too much rain you know like you can't see when your waters when your eyes are just getting assaulted by that much rain and i had too much canvas up uh, luckily i was sailing upwind so i was able to and, and with the tiller you can really feel what's going on a lot better so so all i did was just keep the boat pointed into the wind i, I foreach you know I, I put pointed the boat a little bit more upwind than than um ideal for for like typical sailing because there was too much wind and too much canvas so i basically pointed up wind until i felt the boat heel a little bit less like you're just about to tack and I kept it right there, and I could and I could keep that position just by feel without seeing anything. The scary part was that I was in the Gulf Stream, and there's traffic, and there's giant boats, and now I have no access mm. to my AIS, access to any information about other boats. And it went on for, I don't know, it might have been an hour like that. Can't see, like you're steering by feel, can't see. Now, I could have hove to and gone below. My AIS was below, so I could have hove to and gone below and watched the AIS, and, and, and my, my chart plotter was down there too, so... You know, looking back on it, I could have done that. But in the moment, you guys probably know how it is. In the moment, you're just thinking, hang on, you know, hold your course, hang in there, hang in there, be tough, be tough, you know, put up with it. It won't be over, it'll be over eventually. Uh, you're not thinking, you could just heave two and go below and make a cup of tea, you know, just chill out, watch the chart plotter and the AIS and be dry and happy and you could see and everything, you know. <laughs> but, in, yeah. but instead, you're like, I gotta hang, I gotta be tough, you know, tough this out. Yeah. So yeah. I toughed it out yeah. and um, it was a little sketchy, but. You know, in the end, it wasn't any big deal. And not, not nearly as scary as that shark, you know, or drowning. Those were the really mm. scary things, you know. True, true. I have one more on the way back from Newfoundland. Um, sailing downwind, broad reach, 20, 25 knots, nighttime, cold, rainy. My whisker pole jumped off the mast because the jaw failed and started creating a total chaos on deck. And uh, that was a long ordeal that where one problem led to another. And it was an ugly, hairy situation for many hours took a long time to fix uh, i eventually got it so fixed just, and everything was cool some of our listeners might not know what a whisk ripple is can you elaborate a little more on how and what happened yeah so when you're sailing downwind the head sail i just use a head sail no main when i'm on a deep broad reach and the head sail will breathe in and out and shake and it needs to be controlled so a pole is a long aluminum pole that goes from the mast out to your sheet and just holds the sail in place and it connects to the mast via a spring-loaded jaw and it connects to the sheet the same way. And anyway, the um, the spring that holds the jaw shut failed and broke, and it came off. And then it, now it's just like a wild beast swinging around and trying to poke holes in the mainsail. Basically, it basically poked in between the mainsail and the mast and just created havoc. So I had to drop the, I had to furl the Genoa immediately, and I did in a rush. So one thing as a sailor, you you need to never allow yourself to hurry up and rush. You need to be calm and cool and collective about everything, even in a chaotic situation. And I slipped up and furled the jib too quickly and allowed the sheets to get wrapped up in the sail with the sail. So that's what happened. My sheets wrapped up in the sail and that causes the sail to not furl properly and it leaves it loose and baggy. And on top of that, it locks it in place. Somehow the head sail got locked and I could not unfurl it to fix the problem. And, and it led to a scary situation where I could have lost my whole rig. Yeah. This is you again, solo out in the middle of nowhere. Solo in the dark while it's raining and it's cold too. Yeah. And the wind's blowing. Yeah. 
Not a pretty sight. Yeah, fun times. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so given your diverse experiences, what's like? What are some lessons or you know, piece of advice you'd share with someone who's just starting out on their own life adventure? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, first off, just freaking go for it. You know, if you've got an adventure you want to do, like that's what life's all about. Life isn't about going to work every day. You go to work every day to survive, not because it's life's goal. So if you can still survive and go on a, a great adventure, by all means do it. That's what you're gonna remember when you're when you're when you're old. That's what that's what life's all about is the adventure. So absolutely do it. Whatever you're dreaming up, um, you know, go for it. And if it's something like sailing, you need to educate yourself. You need to like for me it was reading books and taking a class and getting some experience. And then you got to go for it at some point. You're not going to feel like you're ready. You're going to feel like a total novice who's about to bite off more than you can chew, but you got to go for it anyway. You know, don't don't fall into the trap of I'm going to go as soon as I'm ready or I'm going to go as soon as the boat's ready. Yeah, go go before the boat's ready. Like it's cuz it's never going to be ready. You can always look at your boat and think, "Well, yeah, you know, I could I could do a little bit of this or that and make it a little bit safer or I could get some more safety gear." Like like set a limit. You know, set a limit, set a time set a limit for your safety gear be like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna get an eperb and a end reach and a life raft and flare gun flares blah 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 you know make your make your list get the stuff and then forget about it don't don't keep looking at ads thinking oh gosh i need this and that and this and that just just get what you think you need and get your boat to where you think it's ready and 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 then go like you know just freaking go and do it and deal with what happens while you're out there you know I've, we've all been in that situation but so many people buy boats and then never go anywhere because they don't they don't pull the trigger for a variety of reasons. You gotta eventually pull the trigger. So that's it, man. Go for it. Pull the trigger. Get some education and pull that trigger. As we come to our conclusion here, what is the future of Paul? You know, what are you, what big adventures you got? You know, what are you working on? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I am so focused right now on writing. Uh, I just wrote my third novel, and I'm writing a fourth right now. That's like the big goal for me is just to just to keep writing and i'll probably go to the bahamas next because i love it there and there's still a whole bunch of islands i haven't seen i think there's 800 islands in the bahamas you know if you count i mean depending on how you count them there's a lot put it that way i haven't seen them all yet and the next big adventure i got i really kind of got that out of my system in newfoundland last year but i can feel another one growing inside of me and it's patagonia it's the straits of magellan the people channel the fjords uh, and canals of chile you know, going from the Atlantic to the Pacific, not through the canal, not through the Panama Canal, but via the fjords and and, and canals and channels down there. The long way, yeah. You know, I've interviewed a couple of people that have been down there, and, and it sounds just like a bigger version of Newfoundland. You know, bigger mountains, further south, the higher latitudes, the bigger adventure for sure. But I need a heater. I'm not willing to do that unless I get <laughs> like a heater in the boat. You know, I didn't have a proper heater last time, and by golly, it sure was cold. Hmm. Just, just mm. relentless cold, you know, cold, 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 and then it's still cold. That was the hardest part for me. I, I'm okay in the tropics. I like it here in Panama. It's 85 degrees every day here, every day, 85. Sometimes 87, never, never 90. You know, and it rains so much. There, you know, you just have abundant fresh water here. You can jump in the water and come out and rinse off with fresh water and drink rainwater and spear fish. And I got a, I got a good fish yesterday. I got a permit. Beautiful fish with a spear. Fantastic. I love eating fresh fish. Yeah, and there's surf here. I, I love it here. I love Panama. Me gusta mucho. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. 
So, so I've been meaning to ask you, maybe this is going to be the last question from my side is, and you mentioned a bunch of times that you fish a lot, but like, how do you keep yourself stocked up on food and stuff? What do you do? Uh, no problem here. Like there's grocery stores and the locals here, there, there's a lot of indigenous communities here, um, you know, natives, native Americans, uh, they paddle around in dugout canoes and sell empanadas or banana bread. Oh my God. I bought five big pieces of banana bread yesterday for five bucks. Empanadas are a dollar abundant food here and i and i get fish often uh in the bahamas different story plenty of fish and lobster if you're willing to spearfish and brave the sharks because it's chock full of sharks too but um grocery stores in the bahamas are slim pickings and very expensive so basically my deal is when i have the opportunity to go to a grocery store i go and i fill up a backpack and i fill up bags and if i know i'm going to the bahamas like i start stocking up months ahead of time so i, I try to bring like a lot of canned food and rice and beans and dried food oatmeal and trail mix uh, when i go to the bahamas uh, because it's you know i mean i spend a lot of time at un uninhabited places there and the inhabited places will have a grocery store but it's like a, it's very small and very expensive yeah, you can't get you can't get stuff in the Bahamas. You can't order stuff. You can't get mail there. You can't find parts for your boat. Like you need to bring everything. It's funny, you know. It's right next to America, but it's hard to get anything there. Well, Paul, you know this is our conclusion here. So, how about you tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can find your books, where they can find your podcast, and maybe give like a few episodes of the podcast that are top. Uh, yeah, you can find everything on paultrammell.com. It's P-A-U-L-T-R-A-M-M-E-L-L.com. My podcast, Offshore Sailing and Cruising, and Dream Chasers and Eccentrics, you can find anywhere you find podcasts. And my books are all available on Amazon. You can find them all, links to them all on my, on my website too. And um, yeah, I just interviewed, uh, on Dream Chasers, I just interviewed my brother, Sam Trammell, who's an actor, like a big time actor. And uh, that was absolutely, I found it fascinating. And uh I also just interviewed another actor, uh, Emmanuel Shariki, who's been in a bunch of movies and TV shows too. Those are really interesting. And on the on the sailing podcast, God, gosh, my next one's going to be Steve Alexander. He he just uh, lost his autopilot on the way to the Azores from Bermuda, and he had like three weeks of hand steering while he was awake and heaving mm. to when he slept. Just a really really difficult experience for him. That's coming up Monday. Lots of lots of great episodes in the podcast. I mean, the number one, if I go all the way back to episode one, and you got Pete Goss and the and the Vendée Globe having to turn and sail upwind in fifty five knots in the Southern Ocean oh, for boy. three days to rescue a dude who was whose boat sank, and he freaking found him and rescued, like, pulled this guy out of his life raft in the Southern Ocean. Just an amazing story. Yeah, there's so much, there's so many cool stories. Yeah, I, I, it's just, it's overwhelming to think how many cool experiences people have had. And, and I've been lucky enough to interview a lot of them. Well, and then I'm also Paul. on Instagram, uh, trammel.paul on Instagram. But yeah, it's all at paultrammel.com. And thanks for asking. And thanks for having me on. It. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time and sharing your story. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe to ShipShape.pro. Pro, 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 pro.